Мамой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Well, hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and as always, I'm joined by Rusana Novakova and Margaret Budik. As you well know, the SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who are very generous and give monthly contributions to help us keep this podcast going and throw some a bit of money to Margaret and Rusana for all the work they do. So if you would like to become a patron, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and find that Patreon button and to click it there and they'll take you to the page. So so this week um, uh, is an interview with Brian Milikovsky and, and this is actually the fourth interview. I've, I think I've had Brian on more than anybody else, interestingly enough. The first time I interviewed him was in 2015. But he's a very interesting guy uh, who's been living in the Donbass and Severodonetsk, which, you know, if you follow the headlines, is being destroyed by the Russian military right now. He has left, of course, he and his family. But he's been living in the Donbass um, since at least, I think, 2015. And he's really interesting uh, because he's one of the few people that I know of personally who is very good about... Um, looking at the region on the ground and, and paying attention to how it affect how living there, uh, how people, regular people live there and navigate their lives. So I'll talk more about that after the interview, but I just wanted to set that up. Uh, so, uh, Margaret, you're going to go ahead and read uh, Brian's bio. Yes. Uh, Brian Milikovsky works on international projects focusing on economic recovery in the Donbass and writes about the economy of that region for the Kennan Institute, the National Interests, and Open Democracy Russia. He's been working in Ukraine and Russia since 2009 on ecological and development issues, and he's currently raising money to help evacuate civilians from the Donbass. To donate, go to the GoFundMe link on the post for this interview or search Evacuating Civilians from Eastern Ukraine on GoFundMe.com. Here's Brian Milikovsky. Well, Brian, it's nice to talk to you again after a, a while. I think it's been a couple of years, maybe. Um, but for those of uh, those out there who haven't heard our past conversations, why don't we start by just having you introduce yourself? I'm Brian Milikovsky. Uh, I've been living and working in eastern Ukraine the last six years. I came here. Well, I'm not. I'm not here now. I'm actually currently located in Latvia because of the war. But I came to Eastern Ukraine to uh, initially volunteer, and then I got involved in the humanitarian effort in Eastern Ukraine in the Donbas, and that eventually morphed into working in the development sector, economic recovery, and I also do. Um, I do some analysis. I write articles. I share my understanding of uh, socioeconomic questions of the Donbass conflict, uh, wherever wherever people will publish me. Well, there, there's certainly some insightful, insightful pieces, and I'll make sure to, to link some of them. Um, but, you, you know, since you have been living in the area and trying to understand it for yourself, that, that is the Donbass, can you, you know, tell us why is this region so significant in Ukraine, but also in why even the Russian Federation cares? Well, I mean, it's playing such an important role right now, 
of course, in this horrible conflict uh, because of this fundamentally mistaken belief in the Russian leadership that uh, the Donbass is just sort of unambiguously really a part of their cultural space and, uh, you know, accidentally uh, belongs to Ukraine. You know, famously, Vladimir Putin blames Lenin for that. Um, when, you know, of course, in fact, the Donbass has this uh, fantastically interesting and and complex identity. I mean, you know, really great scholarly works have been written about that. But in in practice, I'd say, you know, the most significant way you just see that is that I lived in Severodonetsk, uh, which is the temporary capital of Luhansk Oblast when since 2014, Russia and its its separatist auxiliaries have have controlled the city of Luhansk that the province is named after. Severodonetsk, absolutely predominantly a Russian-speaking community, which, you know, in Russia's, the Russian leadership's understanding of the world is just this this direct equal sign to uh, political sympathy and membership in, in the Russian world. And just their absolute inability to understand that that is not the case, that this Russian-speaking community with many ethnic Russians or people of indecipherable Soviet mixed uh, ethnic heritage, just like, you know, should be very uh, familiar to us Americans, contains the full political spectrum and and a critical mass of people who identify with the Ukrainian civic nation, their, their in absolute inability to understand that explains why they are pinning everything on dragging the government-controlled areas of the Donbass into their so-called People's Republics, or maybe they're just going to go for straight annexation this time using, using unspeakable military violence. Uh, because for them, it's just having realized that they cannot drag the entire country into whatever orbit they're they're hoping to, you know, they're really just sort of hoping to snatch this low hanging fruit, and it's so it's extremely significant to them as uh, what they just really perceive as uh, this territory to which they have the right, and it's significant to Ukraine because it's I think really. I mean, besides some very materially significant things, right? It was hold, holding, you know, the greater part of the country's uh, industrial legacy, both from pre-revolutionary times and from you know this classic Soviet industry, with all of the social implications that brought, but also just you know all the GDP that that brought, right? I mean, the Donbas was and is, although it's being destroyed before our eyes, an incredibly important part of. Ukraine's economic existence. But but beyond that, it's also just, it's incredibly important right now for Ukraine because it really was, it's the territory that has already been through this and been transformed by this since 2014. Uh, I have been able to see so much of that um, living in a small uh, city, I think a fairly classic community, of Eastern Ukraine, of the Donbass, Severodonetsk, traveling all over the region, but but really based there, to see uh, the impact of that eight years of the Donbass war, uh, to see that sort of 
critical mass of those people who do see themselves as part of the Ukrainian community, which is, you know, a community with many interpretations, it's one in flux, but to see them, uh, you know, really come to the fore socially, put forward a Ukrainian Donbass identity uh, to the point where, you know, in this 2022 invasion, the large-scale welcoming to outright collaboration that was seen in 2014 is really absent. And so I think the Donbass is incredibly important right now as this sort of marker of how Ukrainians do react to Russia's imperial moves since the 2014 was a, a precursor to this one. And so it's incredibly important for us to understand, you know, how 2014 is different than 2022 in the Ukrainian Donbass. And and I think it was a real sig signal um, if Russia had been able to interpret it, if it had not had such scales over its eyes with this imperial arrogance, uh, that things were not going to go as they thought that they would. But they still seem unable to acknowledge that. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. The, um, you know, the... <laughs> I mean, imperial arrogance is 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 I think putting it lightly <laughs> in some respects, because you know here is a here is a you know speaking of the Russian leadership, you know to to completely have a misunderstanding of that region and its population, um, to think that they could roll in and be greeted as liberators, you know, to be crass about it is just really incredible. But I was struck by you. You seem to say that there's been a shift from 2014. I mean, you spoke about how in 2014 you could, you know, actually find people who would be willing to, you know, welcome, collaborate, whatever the Russian the Russian state. Um, but now that is not the case. Uh, so what has happened? In, in the, what is what is what contributed to this shift, it, or is there a shift at all? I really do believe there is, but it is quite remarkable that, for instance, it it was expressed earlier in elections, but not in, for instance, a, a marked way. I mean, uh, for instance, the the opposition platform for life, more or less openly pro-Russian party that was led by uh, the notorious Viktor Medvedchuk, um, you know, basically... Uh, held most of the town, city, county councils in eastern Ukraine. Not all, most, large majority. Uh, that held uh, in the elections when Zelensky was uh, elected initially in the first round. You know, the east was blue, which is how Ukrainian pollsters uh, uh, flag the the OPZZ pro-Russian party. Um, you know, you definitely saw a significantly more expressive, active uh, block of pro-Ukrainian political forces in the East than what people tell me and what you know my reading into the into the region tells me about pre twenty fourteen. I had never been in the Donbas except to as a <laughs> as a volunteer election monitor when Yanukovych was elected in twenty ten uh, in Donetsk for one night uh, before before the war. But but you know you see a much more expressed uh, uh, pro-Ukrainian political force in the region, and yet 
So I would have said, yeah, you know, 2022 or or whatever, a new Russian invasion, whenever it would happen, it won't look like 2014. But the extent that it doesn't look like 2014 surprised me. It really did. Um, and so what changed? I mean, there is a there is a filtering separation effect, right? I mean, the core territories that Russia was able to really depend on local enthusiasm, sort of indigenous support to outright collaboration and armed collaboration. Um, their greatest concentration is already under Russian control. It's the industrial mining cities of the so-called Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics. That being said, Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, Mariupol, all kinds of uh, cities in the government-controlled areas, I think uh, demographically and in their pre-war historic uh, political composition did not significantly differ, yet they became very different places. So there was a, a certain level of sorting. There was a sorting in that so many pro-Ukrainian people in uh, the territories that the Russians took control of together with their, their separatist auxiliaries, they became internally displaced persons and they enriched the government-controlled areas of the Donbass. And they were very often uh, quite politically, socially active people. Um, often the, the Russian term pasyanarnaya chast is used to discuss them in, in the region. They they are, you know, maybe worth more more than their their sum uh, in in an, just if you're counting votes, because they're passionate people. Then the people in the government controlled cities are looking and seeing the socio economic black hole that the Russian controlled areas of the Donbas became, uh, even with political, cultural, pro Russian proclivities. They're looking at that and saying, "Yeah, no way." No way, thanks. You know, uh, the, I recall when this all began in 2014. I was living in Russia at the time. Russians kept, in, many Russians I spoke to kept saying to me, you know, Ukraine's going to descend back into the 1990s with all of their anarchy, all of their, uh, you know, revolutions. We know you can't go back to that. Well, they, their political leadership, their army created the 1990s again in the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republic, so called. So there's this. This. Let me let me ask you let me let me interrupt you first again and ask you about because you know we don't hear a lot about what life is like in those two separatist republics. Um, you know, it, you know, especially at, in the West, right? And and we could there are a lot of reasons for that, but I, I'm curious. You know, it, I think this is a really important point to to, you know, illuminate is to what is life like for those people in those republics, um, you know, through your conversations, people who've left and you've talked to, what is it like to live in those separatist regions before the, before the invasion of, of February? Um, rough, increasingly socioeconomically hopeless. Um, so there, there is, I, I, I had been preparing a, a piece for international crisis group on the economy, economic relations between government and non-government controlled sides of the Donbass before this war started. It's unfortunately now very moot, but we, we really tried to look deeply at it and a combination of Russia's absolutely colonial relationship to 
these territories that it supposedly had liberated, supposedly it was were so beloved to it. Absolutely colonial relationship, sucking out low value, low value added coal, pig iron, things like that, laundering them into its own economy and selling them into global markets while making absolutely no efforts for the region's more advanced manufacturing to to be able to enter Russian markets or or to keep it alive in any way. Plus, some policies that I disagreed with that the Ukrainian government used, including a, a series of policies that is often called the economic blockade of the of the non-government controlled areas, uh, which which made that sort of laundering scheme virtually the only way that the economy there there could continue living, led to together to a terrible socioeconomic state that saw massive outmigration. Um. Strikes, which I mean, Sean, you have to understand these are these are statelets run by their security services, overseen by the Russian security services. To strike in a place like that means a lot. And by 2020, 2021, there were just constant strikes in metallurgy, mining, uh, transport. It was just getting worse and worse. And people were profoundly losing faith in uh, the so-called republics. Russia was maintaining a certain level of sort of idealism for them. They, the popularity of Russia was dropping less, not as fast as you might imagine there. Um, but they were profoundly losing uh, faith in the so-called Republican project. Uh, and uh, that there were opportunities there for Ukraine. Um, they weren't always, they weren't always taken. It wasn't always possible to take them. And again, that, that policy of blockade really, uh, also played its role. But you saw, I think, just an increasingly hopeless region. And then in after February 24th, it became a source of the most straightforward cannon fodder you can imagine. Russia just started dredging men, not even young men, any men, out off the streets of Luhansk, Donetsk, and other communities that are under their control and throwing them at the Ukrainian army with minimal preparation. There's all these protest videos now online of conscripts saying, you know, this is madness. You can't send us to fight the Ukrainian army. Look at them. They're, they're a modern army. Uh, you know, we, we don't have any identification. If we die, no one even knows. Uh, you see the Russians sent multiple members of the Donetsk Philharmonic to, to fight, and many of them died. It's it's a it's a it's just a hideous expression of what Russia really thinks of this colony. So that's that's life there. I, I wish I wish uh, for the sake of the people that live there, I could describe it better, but I can't. Yeah, that's the thing too. In terms of like what we hear about life, you know, on the Russia-controlled side, you know, one of the questions that I've been wondering about too, but just haven't taken the time to look into it, is the the separatist forces. And where where is where are they in all of this carnage? Um, because we only hear about the Russian military. We don't really hear. I mean, unless you're a close observer and, and read Russian, you can find some statements from the Republican leadership. But in general, we you know it's kind of a you know who's fighting? Are the separatist forces still there? Are they incorporated into the Russian military? It's just kind of a, a lot of questions. This war really highlights the extent that, you know, you might have noticed I use this word, they're, they're an auxiliary force of the Russian army. Um, 
many people, myself included, earlier in the conflict, um, probably ascribed them, even when we knew they were being armed and led by the Russians, we still ascribed them too much agency. They're a significant auxiliary force of the Russians, and more about their role probably cannot be said. And they're really a non-starter in this war. I think Russia probably, having put so much money into them, had much higher hopes of the so-called Republican armies. They play an important role in occupying uh, very thinly populated parts of Luhansk Oblast that are now under control, the, the rural north. Uh, many of them came from there originally at some point in their lives, have relatives there. It's a very strange dynamic. Um, they are cannon fodder. But the, for instance, you know, giving them a piece of the front line saying, okay, you know, Donetsk People's Republic, national militia, you know, go forward. Your glory will be to seize, you know, these cities. Uh, if, if they had hopes that that would work, it didn't. And so they are, you know, it's really highlighting the extent that they were never a force that could actually counter the Ukrainian army. They were an auxiliary pushed forward in front of, as a mask, the Russian military. And, you know, even if we felt we understood that initially, I think we're understanding how much more that is true today. How are people um, in the region in where you lived and whatever contacts of people you have now, how are they, how do they, given, I mean, the, what you described, it's hard to wrap one's head around it, right? And, and of course, we can go through all sorts of tropes and big ideas about what we think about the Russian government and Putin and all this stuff. But how are people on the ground making sense of this? You know, as they experience it, as they their loved ones experience it, etc. There is, um, I think there is the first genuine real ground shift going on, sort of seismic political shift going on in, in cities like Severodonetsk that I've seen. What I saw originally was a, was a reconciliation, a soft, slow sort of, um, not reconciliation in the warm and fuzzy, but sort of people were, people who had pro-Russian proclivities were reconciling themselves to living in Ukraine after the trauma of 2014, the break, it's it's difficult, I think, to overestimate the extent that there really was a a, a tremendous um, in, uh, indigenous uh, outrage in 2014. It was not universal, but it was powerful force. And it's what Russia tapped into to create these structures that it sort of put in front of its its invasion. And that is, you know, kicked off by by the victory of Euromaidan, which had very, very low support ratings, lower than 30 in Eastern Ukraine. Now, I mean, lower than 30 still means there were very significant numbers of people there who supported it. Many of them are now important in, in civil society. But, you know, you saw people coming after that break, that trauma, uh, reconciling, and maybe with time, you know, adding more and more positive feeling to that. That's the dynamic I felt I was watching the last eight years. It was really supported and benefited from decentralization in Ukraine that put more money into these communities, uh, a, a modest but but steady economic revival in the East. And then we see this. And, you know, I've spoken to quite a few people that say, yeah, this is the first time my really sort of diehard pro-Russian friends and neighbors are starting to question their worldview. Um, 
they were able to sort of maintain it while also reconciling themselves, not take, making any active moves to undermine you know, the Ukrainian state. But you hear that for the first time, really significant numbers. There were some people like that in 2014. I think it's a much greater number now. That being said, there are still absolute dieharders. There are still people, I, I support volunteers who, uh, I fundraise for them, who evacuate people from these bombarded cities. They still sometimes get to bomb shelters and often find them full of very old and vulnerable people, some of whom are waiting for the liberators. Yeah, but I think we're seeing a real shift. What I just keep seeing over and over again in Severodonetsk, in all the online communities, in my communications with these people, is just such a genuine expression, very often in the Russian language, of outrage at this you know, indescribable uh, imperial arrogance of the Russians, that they think we belong to them. Uh, they think they can come in here, first of all, absolutely destroy everything, but then commandeer it, our institutions, our businesses, everything. It just belongs to them. Who are these people? You know, they were our friends and neighbors and relatives at one point. Then we had this difficult, strained relationship. But in cities of eastern Ukraine, in many cases, it still was maintained. But now, who are you to think that you can do this to us? And it's it's quite remarkable, Sean. It's, um, it's heartbreaking. This is a really interesting um, perspective that you're giving us because it's a it's almost like I mean it is it's almost like a relatives coming to your house and destroying it and and then claiming that their house is your you know your house is theirs and then I, I guess the, the I mean the word arrogance just really fits here because I mean. It, it's it's an interest. I, I'm tr struggling to 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 even like articulate what I think of this, but I just find. I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, going to your statement that people are saying, "Who do you think you are to come in here and think we be we belong to you?" It's just a really powerful perspective that really gets to the ground of how people try to understand the world around them that is is kind of shorn of all of this political ideological stuff that we're fed in in you know the big media type thing you know what i mean yeah i mean again we're talking about people who you know span the spectrum from some of whom were impassioned pro-ukrainians since i mean that sounds bizarre right pro-ukrainian ukrainians but it's it's a, you know it's a frequently used understanding pro-ukrainsky right uh they, um, you know, covered that spectrum all the way to, you know, a lot of people in a, in a very large, ambiguous middle to some people who still maintained, like I said, they, they were simply reconciled to be living in, in the Ukrainian community, whereas they, they did have a certain amount of membership to the Russian world. And uh, this profoundly stupid war is killing in large numbers Many of those, the farthest at the latter end of the spectrum, I said, because it's very often the elderly and the vulnerable who maybe just have too much life experience, too much nostalgia, pain. I mean, there's you know a million podcasts to be had about what it is about the Soviet experience that's so uh, 
durable for some people. Um, killing large numbers of them. I mean, truly, and in, in, it's inconceivable how many in places like Mariupol and Rubizhna are simply buried under the rubble of their homes. And it is, I spoke today with a good acquaintance who was always pro-Ukrainian, but he had so many acquaintances on the separatist side, Ukrainians who, who considered themselves now Republicans and wanted to be part of Russia, in fact. Uh, he didn't want to return to the violence of 2014, 2016. Uh, uh, I understand him very much. I also held a similar position as an outsider, but you know that a lousy peace is, is better than returning to that kind of war. Uh, and he said to me, but, but now... The second time they are displacing me and wrecking everything that I tried to rebuild, what's my next? Now do I go to Western Ukraine? No, they will come for me there as well. I It is burning away my tolerance, uh, burning away my moderation. They, they must be stopped. And that's he's not really a very political person. He's just reflecting on twice having this madness, ideological madness come into his home and burn everything down and force him into a bomb shelter. Uh, and, you know, th his reaction, I think, is much more visceral uh, than than one I would describe as political. Let, let's talk about, you know, basically trauma, um, because this war has been hanging over the head of the region for a while with shelling on both sides, both sides, people on, on across the line. Uh, have had to put up with, you know, periodic flare-ups for the last several years. Um, what do you what do you get the sense of how the you know between 2014 to 2000 February 2022, what how did that life, how did this situation then contribute to a, a you know building a a, tra a a traumatized population enormously. Um, this is just one of the most painful topics uh, of observing and living in the Donbass and, and commenting. Uh, one of the most difficult to work with. But the, the violence that civilians in the Donbass experienced on both sides of the line is absolutely abused and weaponized in Russia's war aims but is also the source of a major part, and here I'm talking actually about the violence experienced by those who live in what is now the so-called people's republics. It is the greatest single contributor to, I think, uh, a sustained level of loyalty nonetheless, even as they socioeconomically collapse, is unacknowledged, unprocessed, uncompensated many of them would like to be it to be apologized for i mean that's a debate but they don't even they see it either being invisible or being justified by parts of ukrainian society that trauma is an incredibly difficult part of the story of the donbass um i began writing about the region in 2015 i cannot tell the story of what I saw and, and perceived there without talking about uh, that violence. What, what we know is that people died, civilians died on both sides of the front line uh, for the last eight years, 
most intensely in 2014 through 2015, basically because of the same problem, which was heavy artillery, primarily heavy artillery being fired into cities where the opposite force had uh, had soldiers and military hardware uh, with large-scale collateral damage and also shelling that at some point seemed to have a momentum and a character of its own. And civilians on both sides often told me that they felt at some point it lost any military character. That's their perception. Believe me, it is so hard to understand what happened at any given time in any shelling event on either side of the line in the Donbass. And I don't claim to, to be able to, to interpret many of those events. But people there very often said at some point it, just, it was just flying all around our city. And you couldn't just say, well, that's because you know there was a howitzer behind, the, behind that apartment building. Not a howitzer, of course, but you know what I mean, artillery. Uh, and that is extremely concentrated feeling in the People's Republic, so-called, both because the, the level of destruction there was greater. Uh, it's you know a very dense urban area that was held by the separatists. One of the most famous separatists, Hodakovsky, said that we use these cities as our fortresses. That's our strategy. Uh, you know, separatists and Russian forces. Um, these areas were more contested. Uh, Ukraine was pushing into them, trying to get them back. There are all these buts, all these nuances. And yet still, what we do need to understand is that for the eight years of the Donbass War, most of the civilians dying, the majority, were dying on that side of the line. And that trauma is a huge part of the mythos of the of the so-called people's republics and russia uses it as the foundation stone for their justification for this horrific war we see putin talking about a so an alleged genocide and again i just want to keep adding nuances and buts here right i mean so many civilians died on the government controlled side i spent several years helping run a program where we were we were fixing their homes. Uh, there are credible accusations that the Russians and separatists used really bloody uh, false flag operations at various stages of the war, although they also accuse Ukraine of doing that constantly. Uh, all of these things. And yet, again, it was so important to their, their mythos. Uh, you heard people there saying all the time, where have you been the last eight years while the Ukrainians were shelling us, including people in cities that probably haven't been faced any serious uh, uh, military action since 2014. But that is one of the most commonly heard uh, phrases there when people say, well, you know, what is, what is your protector Russia doing to us? Well, where have you been for the last eight years while your army, your army, right? These are actually Ukrainians saying this, was shelling us. And then Russia takes this. I don't want to, you know, I mean, we talk so much about Vladimir Putin weaponizing things, but truly weaponizing the memory of dead children of the Donbass, right? When, when a massive rocket hit the Kramatorsk train station where all these people were trying to flee, which by most accounts, uh, most credible accounts, overwhelmingly looks like a Russian attack, um, although they claim it's not, you know. For the children was written on the side of that rocket. For the children. Try to process that, right? So the Russians take this and make it the foundation stone of their invasion and create this 
aura of this being a moral war for the Russian population. And I have engaged with so many Russians that I knew before I had to leave that country in 2015 who I who are buying into that. I know so many that don't, but I've engaged with many who do. And under that aura, they are buying into a war that has blown away the last eight years of violence in the Donbass every single day. Today in my city, Severodonetsk, Russian artillery killed 12 and wounded 40 in one community, which would have been a very, very bad month or season or half a year or in the last couple of years of this conflict. I, I want to ask you about the, this notion of invisibility, um, because in many respects, you know, here, here, in, in here, I'm speaking about the international community, um, and and what could have been done to try to prevent this. You know, there was a lot of attention, of course, in 2014 to 2015, and then the Donbass just disappeared. You know, you'd hear every once in a while, something about the Minsk agreements and trying to broker the Normandy, whatever, all of this attempts uh, for better or for worse. But now this, this region, and of course, Ukraine as a whole, is the front and center of um, Western attention. Uh, so much so that, you know, looking at the LA Times, I mean, the New York Times, looking at the New York Times every day, the war is the top headline. It's been consistent, except for a few exceptions, the last three months. Do they feel like in, in and I was because I'm really struck by this statement of like, where have you been for, for eight years? And, and I'm wondering if this could be said, this is being asked on both sides of the line by civilians. You know, was there some something did the international community or I should say the collective West um, really fail to address this issue for so long? Or was there anything they could do? Or do you think that this war was just, a, you know, a matter of time? Well, that's I mean, one of the most painful, and and also <laughs> we're we're getting we're going through all the greatest hits of the just incredibly difficult questions of of the Donbass, Sean. Because could it have been we all we all entered this Minsk cul-de-sac for seven years? I just as an observer and commentator, I mean, not not of course even anywhere near the actual policy being made though, or or to be the people whose fate was being decided by it. But I I was certainly a an enthusiastic Minsk observer, spoke to a lot of experts, tried to understand it. When it first occurred, I, I really, really hoped it was the was the, the pathway to the lousy peace that was better than almost any return to, to the war of 2014, 2015, especially after the Russians made it clear every time the Ukrainians seemed to be getting close to a military victory over these auxiliary separatist forces that the Russian army would get involved and smash them and simply not allow that to happen. And so, of course, then if, if we have that horrific prospect ahead of us, then try to find some tolerable, ideologically ambiguous, gritted teeth piece through this process. Many of us really believed and entered this cul-de-sac for seven years, which drastically reduced the violence of the war and created conditions in the government-controlled areas for a steady and very visible uh, revival, still incredibly economically troubled place, yet 
visibly trying hard, rising up, cities getting spruced up, businesses opening, uh, factories diversifying their markets finally, uh, away not just Russia. I mean, you, you in this space created by Minsk, you could see something that we all we wanted to hold on to so badly, and that created a, an ethos of you know don't rock the Minsk boat. So I was one of those people, especially earlier on, 2015, 16, 17, I was not enthusiastic. I was against sending arms to Ukraine because I felt, well, this just kicks off, you know, this triggers the Russians. They created the conditions of this peace. They can crash it at any moment. And that is up to this day that that is the truth. They crashed it on February 24th when it no longer suited them. Yeah. You know, yeah. don't. So you feel you feel that it, there was an inevitability about it. Well, but but we also, it, it, there was an inevitability unless somehow you could snatch some tolerable lousy peace from Minsk. There someday there should be a post mortem. Was that ever possible? With time, it just became so clear. Ukraine was ready to make some concessions to the people who live there, the people of certain regions of Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast, which has this in, in Ukrainian and Russian, this long, frequently used acronym, ORDLO, the people who live there would get some concessions, cultural, some level, additional level of economic and political autonomy, probably language concessions. But, but you know, that's what it was imagining was like a package of legislation. For Russia, it was, you will accept the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics back into your body politic, probably with a lot more weapons than is written in the Minsk Accords, because the armies of the Luhansk and Donetsk Republics were carefully changed their names to people's militia, which is what's written in Minsk, that, that those regions would be able to have a people's militia. Probably no one imagined that they would have heavy artillery. Right, uh, we we don't know. We never got that far, anywhere near that far, as that question in in the Minsk, because this chasm between what Ukraine was ready to do and the way that Russia saw this as simply Minsk is firming up what we created, which is you have to live with these states within a state. Uh, and while it's hard to compare, I think they were really hoping to take Ukraine the path of of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Where you know Moscow had a had a foreign policy has a foreign policy with Banja Luka and with Sarajevo and and it gets what it wants with Sarajevo primarily by by having that special relationship with with Respublika Srpska and and many 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 people find this to be the core of why that state is really so struggling to this day and that chasm proved unbridgeable but so many of us still held out. Maybe somehow some rickety bridge gets thrown across. And with time, I think, Sean, we didn't realize we were hoping, trying to preserve a zombie peace. And and what about what about the role of the West in this as basically the, you know, at the time for the last several years, the back of the de facto backer of, of Ukraine? It's it's easy to say, you know, why didn't you know why? Why didn't Western governments and many many critics do say this? Why didn't they lean on Kiev to implement the Minsk Accords again? That I think disregards uh, the massive space between what Kiev could possibly implement in its political system and and what the Russians expected they would get. Um, 
you know, I have many questions. If if by February, you know, New York Times was, I believe New York Times, possibly Washington Post, I don't recall, was reporting that Biden was giving, President Biden was giving signals to President Putin. Okay, you know, maybe the NATO question will be on the table. Uh, and, and at the same time was reporting with what we now understand is incredible accuracy about Russia's war aims. You know, why was our government neither fish nor fowl? Right. Why, in my understanding, there's two things that could have been done go full bore peacemaker or start arming Ukraine before the invasion happened. I don't understand being neither. It's very hard for me to justify that because it turns out they were incredibly accurate in understanding how ready Russia was for this war. And it does matter. We're now learning that it matters the months and weeks that Ukraine receives arms or does not, you know, might. Def- decide the fate of this place I've been living the last six years that my wife has spent all her life in, that is this community we really love. So either full bore and be ready for a very lousy and difficult and ideologically ambiguous peace, or accept the inevitability of this war and, and help Ukraine defend itself, this neither fish nor fowl position we ended up in where the arms started coming only after the massive violence began is very difficult for me to understand and, and justify. Yeah. Um, you know, this this war, like like many wars, have have different dimensions, right? We've talked a lot about the local dimension. There's the on the level of the Ukrainian state level or Ukrainian nation, but this is also a war about geopolitics. Do people who have to actually deal with it, living through it, feel like they're hostages of these great powers and their their geopolitical machinations? You know, that, that is a widely held opinion. I've certainly heard it many hundreds of times in the last eight years. I think this current invasion adds some, it, it blunts that feeling a little bit for some of the Ukrainians I speak with, because there was not a genuine triggering event. Uh, you know, some scholars may argue, no, in fact, you know, the cooperation with NATO was was in you know Russia's perception enough of a enough of an event uh you know certain just certain other policies of of the west over the last year you know convinced Russia uh that that there was never going to be a conciliatory policy but i don't think in their gut ukrainians believe the west instigated this horrific war and they see how clearly there was this desperate, clutching, snatching attempt to find some causes belly, and when they couldn't, they just did it. He just did it. And I think that's blunting to some extent and bringing forward the feeling that that so much of this is just driven by the Russian political elite and Vladimir Putin's inability to live with an independent Ukrainian state. And people, including Eastern Ukrainians, many of whom might have a lot of ethnic Russian roots, many of whom might speak Russian, believing they belong to a Ukrainian community that he has no right to dictate to. And 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 the the absolutely shameless lack of a real justification for this invasion, I think is down making a lot of Ukrainians downplay a little bit the geopolitics and play up in their understanding the Russian imperialism, Sean. Yeah. No, I mean I I was I've you know it's interesting how Ukraine 
has been described for a long time as, you know, a fractured nation, a, a nation of all sorts of different competing groups and forces and identities. Um, but, you know, we saw a call consolidation in 2014 and 2015 of U- Ukrainian, Ukrainian-ness. And then it sounds, based on what you're saying and other things I, I've read, this is creating a new Ukrainian. This is solidifying, concretizing, whatever the word we want to give it, a Ukrainian nation. Yes, um, and, and that began in 2014. It began yeah. in 2014. I mean, the, ver- the very thing Vladimir Putin wanted to prevent, he has created through his actions. Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely, there's a lot of... I mean, it sounds banal, but, but it's true. Um, it's absolutely uh, the case that he is baptizing by fire uh, a civic Ukrainian nation that was on its own. It existed. He accelerated it in 2014 to a certain extent, although, although you know, the, as I said, the trauma of 2014, the revolution, the invasion, the, the war, um, certainly fractured a piece of Ukraine's body politic into, into structures where they absolutely no longer many, many, many residents, I'm talking about the so-called People's Republics, really no longer associate themselves with the Ukrainian state. There is, as I said, a significant social base there, uh, regardless of their actual agency. But uh, at the same time, he, he kicked that process off in 2014 in government-controlled areas of the Donbass and, of course, in the rest of the country. But you could really see it happening, I think, best of all, in places like Severodonetsk, Mariupol, Kramatorsk. And again, we see so much the effect of that in 2022 in the absence of bread and salt, right? The sort of traditional greeting uh, in the presence all over the region, Donbass, the Sea of Azov region, of these civic protests, incredibly courageous protests. I mean, I think the world knows a lot about Kherson in the south, that they continue to protest all over the north of Luhansk Oblast which is a depressed rural area, although with sparks of vibrancy, but mostly depressed, lots of nostalgia for rural Soviet life and the community and the guaranteed work and all of the enterprises and the sensation, whatever, however real it was, of, of progress. It's a difficult area. And yet, to my enormous surprise, the absolute expression when Russian and separatist troops rolled in in March was civic resistance. And and we do see, um, again, I, I just, I cannot believe he has concentrated this vicious war in the East. There's an element, Sean, of that that's crazy and an element that isn't. I think they came thinking, we'll start in, we'll, we'll, we'll focus so much on the East. I mean, they also attack Kiev, the North, but lots of activity in the East because very quickly we'll build a strong base here, right? These are the people that are really waiting for us, especially all we have to do is sort of push over the house of cards. And when they discovered how few people were waiting for them, instantaneously, this different side in Russian, there's a great word, doesn't have a good English translation, karatil, a, a punisher, right? That the Nazis had karatilnia operatsi, right? In order to punish the local population. Uh, Russia loves to describe Ukrainian soldiers in that way. It absolutely came to the fore in their relationship to Eastern Ukraine when they didn't get their bread and salt. 
Yeah, it's almost like I I mean, you know, I've been thinking about this for a bit. You know, one of the things about Putin, uh, just to speak about him, is his attitudes towards people he sees as traitors. And I'm wondering if this is part of the logic going on here, is that these people, because they didn't greet us. I think Mariupol was utterly destroyed because it wouldn't, uh, it, again, there was no bread and salt because it had succeeded too well and done too well in Ukraine. And because it simply did not recognize his imperial authority. Uh, and I believe that then, then they just, as I said, they just clicked into this. Okay, then, and, and it was there. It was always under the surface. It was always ready. Then, then we will destroy you. Um, let's let's talk about some of the um, work you're doing in terms of NGOs, and and most recently you've been raising money to help people evacuate the region. Um, why don't you tell us about that and how people can help if they if they desire? Sure. So yeah, one, once I had to, once I left Ukraine with my my wife and baby on the morning of February 24th, uh, I saw that many people I had become acquainted with in the Donbass in 2015, who were these remarkable local volunteers, were basically clicking right back into action. So in 2014, 2015, I saw that they this amazing grassroots effort to evacuate people from the frontline zone and to bring humanitarian aid into the frontline zone, which preceded the major humanitarian international humanitarian effort that I've been working in since then. Uh, for whatever reasons, it's really hard in the hottest, most violent stages of these wars for the international community to be effective at, at life-saving. And it falls to Ukrainian volunteers. They did it in 2014, 2015. They're doing it today. And uh, I saw these amazing individuals doing this, driving into bombarded cities in old school buses, delivery vans, uh, uh, you know, commandeered ambulances, uh, and getting people out and bringing food to bomb shelters where people are spending weeks and now months. Um, and I simply set up a GoFundMe, uh, and um, we've been able to raise 155. Uh, no, actually, now I think it's about 160 thousand dollars so far. Which these, which just goes straight to these volunteer groups. Um, basically, all the overhead is just what it, you know, the the commissions from international transfers, and they're doing incredible work. Pulled about ten thousand people out of these bombarded communities. To this day, Sean, there's about fifteen or twenty percent of the population of Severodonetsk is still there. Under intense bombardment today, the the local authorities got I think thirty seven people out. Um, and and the local authorities do a tremendous amount, the Ukrainian government, and it's it's supported by these volunteers. So uh, I would be enormously grateful if any listeners would like to contribute to this to this effort. Again, all of these funds go straight to to uh, to these grassroots organizations uh, because there are new communities that need evacuation, and there are still people to be pulled out of that hell uh, every day in in these bombarded cities. And what's the best way to find your GoFundMe? Um, if you can find me on Facebook, Brian Milikovsky, I'm the only one. And uh, my GoFundMe is pinned there. Um, uh, it's, um, sorry, just let me make sure I get the absolutely correct uh, name. I 
it, 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 it has changed a few times. Uh, evacuating civilians from eastern Ukraine on GoFundMe. You can also um, Google that. Uh, yeah, I think those two those two means evacuating civilians from eastern Ukraine on GoFundMe or find me on Facebook, uh, find me on Twitter. Uh, that's worked quite well for the, I believe, 450-odd people who've donated so far. Well, I'll also, of course, put links to it on the, the post for this podcast and in the podcast description. So if, if people want to, to find it there, too, that's another avenue uh, to, to locate this to, to donate money to help people, you know, evacuate and, and save, be saved from all of this. Um, I want to go back to, you know, what you said earlier about you were a strenuous escalation avoider. You opposed, um, you know, arms transfers. You were for a lousy peace. But, and, you know, one's personal experience, of course, always changes one's political um ideology but and this has happened to you your position has changed on all this can you you want to talk about what what precipitated this shift for you and, and what where you stand now well you know as i as i said earlier on in the conflict i was i was against uh changing the conditions of this rather artificial peace artificial but durable dictated peace created for the minsk process and dictated by Russia. I mean, that needed to be understood from the very beginning. They were not mediating. They said, these are the conditions under which we will bring this war down to a low boil. Uh, and, and you know, we will hash out the, the arrangement that uh, you can live with and we want. Right? That was the Minsk process. Let's be honest about it. But as an alternative to horrific war... Uh, and and the telegraphing position of Russia so often that uh, you know we decide what is uh, uh, escalation, right? We set all the red lines. This was a tremendously difficult position for Ukraine and for Ukraine's supporters in the West, but it simply was the reality. They could decide what was escalation when they would kickstart the big war again, uh, and so uh, you know. I was against, for several years, arms transfers uh, because I did not want to risk, and, and we actually see this dynamic now to a certain extent. I mean, uh, I did not want to risk the West trying to get into a uh, frontline, real-time arms race with a totalitarian state that where Vladimir Putin decides how much force is used, and it happens immediately. When we have obviously different processes, hello Rand Paul, right? Who just just stopped dead land lease for at least a week, uh, potentially more, because I felt, you know, they have an entire mechanism set up to prosecute this war. It can so easily go back to the slaughter, the horrible destruction I saw in twenty fourteen, which twenty fifteen, which is now. Seems quaint. It seems quaint. Um, and so there was a, it was, you know, I was against uh, arms for that reason. There was a peace to be preserved. Vladimir Putin detonated that peace. And as I said, it was a zombie peace. It was walking dead for so long. I am absolutely haunted by the question 
you know, should, would it have been possible to begin arming Ukraine as many people advocated for, many people who, people like I said, hey, you're not taking into consideration the risk here of that you're going to kick off a big war. They said, the big war is coming. The big war came, right? Uh, mea culpas are richly needed in a lot of the, in, in, in this situation. But could we have started? Was there a way that didn't just kick off the big war? And would people like me have understood at some point that that this is becoming inevitable? We cannot leave Ukraine stranded against a force that is continuously seems to be trying to convince us, Sean, it's actually genocidal. Right? No matter how many of us are careful, like, wait, hold on, you know, then they just they just keep saying the craziest stuff imaginable on state television and they keep doing what they tell us they're going to do. So, you know, absolutely haunted by that question. Was there a way to gradually, carefully begin arming up Ukraine more effectively that could have helped hold this off? Personally, much as I'd like to believe and and say I was wrong, we should have done that. I, I also have a hard time believing we could have done that when Vladimir Putin decided exactly when whatever red line he decided was crossed was crossed. But perhaps, you know, Ukraine and the West could have set the tempo, set the conditions for the beginning of this confrontation rather than doing, you know, beginning to give arms to Ukraine once he had set up this massive war machine surrounding the country on three sides, uh, poised to, to smash into Ukraine. Uh, but who, who among us would have acknowledged, you know, so many of us might have said then, maybe this was still avoidable, but, but we changed the calculus, you know? And uh, when the time came, he just wrote whatever equation he needed. Sean, he just made it up. He just, he just decided he needed this war. The ideological ferment in his head just just boiled over. I mean, a lot of people are saying after several years of intense isolation. Um, and, and so today, uh, I am, I, I can't hold any position, but that we must r- rigorously arm Ukraine, uh, after, after the destruction of every place that I've known in Eastern Ukraine that I'm seeing through my smartphone and experiencing through, uh, through the the my neighbors and 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 friends that I speak to, some of whom still remain there, but but very few, we're almost all displaced now. Uh, I can't hold any other position, but how we could have avoided this by boosting Ukraine's defenses uh, I, uh, is the most difficult question. And as I said, I'm not sure we ever. I, I think that would have brought us to this moment, but perhaps on Ukraine's conditions instead of Vladimir Putin's. And then, but but if it wasn't arms, was there a real diplomatic, you know, to swing to the other end of the spectrum? Was there a wasted and unused diplomatic effort? Could a lousy peace have been thrashed out in, in the Minsk process? Simultaneously haunts me. Uh, and the fact that we were really, we never got to either and instead, Ukraine was in this position when Russia crashes across the borders on February 24th is is so awful. Yeah, I, I can't help wondering, you know, especially me being a historian, I can't help but imagine, you know, 30, 40, 50 years down the road when this time 
is starting to be dealt with and people are looking at government records. It, part of my, my just impression is that the failure, the, the failure of leadership in Russia, Ukraine, the EU, and the United States, I think can't be equally shared, but it can be collectively shared. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think this is one of the things that haunts me is, you know, where was the leader or group of leaders who are going to stand up? And, and we can even ask this now and say, okay, enough, let's hash this out. Whether that was possible, I don't know. I mean, like you, we don't know. The position was, whatever position one took was a gamble because you don't know how things are going to play out. Um, and now we have to deal with the reality of, you know, the war starting and continuing. Uh, I don't know if you have any response or comments to that. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, so, so much also you know, let's, let's spread the blame around. I mean, as I said, I, I simultaneously can think if we couldn't avoid this, then arm rigorously and so much compromise and ideological ambiguity would have been worth it to avoid this utter destruction. And that's not an easy position to ask another country to take, right? Like you're going to have to swallow some just really awful pills here. Um, because you, because your neighbor is acting psychopathically, but we just don't know how else to do it. And these will be the consequences, right? I mean, no one could know that these would be the consequences. I think almost, virtually no one understood it could get this awful. But it is possible to, to think both of those things. If it's unavoidable, arm rigorously, but boy, you know, a lousy piece, a lousy piece, right? It was... You know, if it ever existed, we should have tried so hard to get to it. But let's, while we're sharing blame all around, let's, of course, recall uh, the absolute absolute arrogance and ideological inflexibility of Russia, which could not see that its maximalist position, while enormously satisfying, while just really hitting the sweet spot for a whole lot of people there with a whole lot of complexes is massively destructive for their well-being and is i think we just i think we're only beginning to understand how destructive this is going to be for russia and what it's going to do to their to their elite and and what the final consequences would be there are so many moments they could have shown the ideological flexibility for instance in the minsk process that many people you know were complaining the west and and ukraine wasn't willing to show because it just seemed like it's so often in these processes, like Russia is just sort of creating the atmosphere, right? Like they, they're just elemental. They've created this whole situation. And now we're watching how the West and, and Ukraine act in it and forgetting they could have done this so much differently, of course, because it's their war. It was their negotiations process and it was their decision to go back to war again. And so while let's, let's share all around, you know, I think they massively miscalculated how much this deeply satisfying policy for them, for, for so, such a big part of Russia's elite and a serious part of its public, uh, is going to be the disaster of the 21st century for them. 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I sympathize with that position very much because there are so many things that the Russian government could have done differently. Um, I mean, they could have just kept the status quo. <laughs> They've already had it for eight years, um, and they seem to be, you know, doing doing pretty much okay with the with the frozen conflict they had in the Donbass and the decision to just destroy it all. Um, I just, I, I personally cannot wrap my head around that either, and I don't know how Russia as a country, as a people, let alone the government is going to claw its way out of this hole. Um, I mean, it's clear that for Putin and his his people, that this is a war for them of survival. They can't lose because this is going to lose. They'll, they have the, the potential of them losing their power is, I think, a very potentially real one, at least diminishing it, uh, their authority. More, more real than it's ever yeah, felt. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I, mean, I think many Russian watchers would agree yeah, with that. Yeah, that, and that's the, that's the really strange thing. I mean, it it's... It's it's a policy of, of self-sabotage. <laughs> you know, there is no, I mean, despite what, you know, the grumbling that one may find in Russian politics, there is no credible real threat against Putin's power. Um, he's defeated his domestic enemies, yet here we go. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I it could, my inability to comprehend it all can lead me down a rabbit hole of rambling. So I'll just believe it at that. <laughs> I think we all underestimated John the extent that, you know, I, I, I in my my last, you know, answer to your question, I kept saying how enormously satisfying this felt. This just hit a spot for. As I said, you know, Vladimir Putin personally, a major part of his elite and a very serious part of the social base in Russia that that supports him. And the extent that that just sort of, you know, kaif, to use another Russian word, the sort of uh, buzz of just feeling, you know, we're finally sticking it to them. We're finally living up to the memory you know, we finally get our chance to smash the fascists. The emotional appeal of that, I didn't, I, I knew how important it was to maintain support over eight years for an operation that also wasn't going very well. But the extent that it could overwhelm all the other functions of decision making, I think so many of us uh, underestimated that, it, especially in that centrally important person that. The actually very strong position Vladimir Putin had on the 23rd, where we were also afraid, oh God, what comes next? He scrapped Minsk. He's going to, is he going to recognize their people's republics in their full, you know, supposedly historic boundaries or just partially? He had an enormous lever in his hands. And I think he said, I'm bored with this. I want my historic war and I want it now. I've waited for it. And 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 that feeling of satisfaction, I think we we underestimated it. Yeah, well, his history is a fickle mistress, <laughs> so he he might uh, he he certainly has gotten it. Um, finally, you know, we're uh, in the third month of this war. We have no idea where it's going. We don't know how it will end. But what are you know? Just to kind of conclude, I'm not asking you to make any predictions, but just what are some impressions you have that that kind of stick with you um, in thinking about you know 
what you, people you know, are living through right now? I mean, I have different impressions from different places. So some of the places I've known, my, my city of Severodonetsk, where I lived, which is a place I just have a lot of feeling for. Um, and, and it's just a smaller example next to Mariupol, is this community that is on the edge of losing its physical place. It's being smashed. You know, Mariupol has been smashed and burned to rubble a city of a half million, an incredibly vibrant city of a half million. Severodonetsk is a smaller cousin, but it has been smashed. It's being smashed to rubble and is under real risk of occupation. It hasn't happened. It might not happen, but it's real risk. And yet there's an amazing emotional community around these cities that may never geographically gather again, uh, but will be at home in the Ukrainian nation. It already was, but this horrible, excuse me for the cliche, but this baptism by fire is just cementing so much that this is a community within the Ukrainian nation. I'm I'm trying not to be too dramatic here, but we're talking about inconceivably dramatic events. And, And that is absolutely clear. I see that in all of the, online communications of so many people from Severodonetsk, Mariupol, other communities that have been smashed in this war. And that's going to last and they're going to be a very important part of the Ukrainian body body politic going forward. Uh, I also know places that without massive violence were rapidly occupied by the Russians. And they in some ways face these are like the rural communities of the north of Luhansk Oblast, which if I had time, I would tell you how wonderful these communities are. But um, they face a less violent, of course, less traumatic, but maybe no, no less terrifying and difficult process because they have been occupied. Many people there are terrified what comes next. You know, the, the sort of public executions may not have begun, but Russia has threatened them. It has the lists. It's forcing them, trying to over and over again to make them accept the institutions of the so-called Luhansk People's Republic to buy into this, to collaborate with this. And I, I feel such, such pain for those people because I know so many people there who are committed to Ukraine. Either they have had to flee and become internally displaced persons again, or they're facing, for instance, a farmer who built up a thousand hectares of farmland over the last 30 years. What does he do today, Sean? Uh, you know, this land that has, you know, probably an absolutely spiritual meaning to him. What does he do under Russian occupation? So these different impressions, very painful in different ways, are are what I'm seeing when I look at this region that I've only been in for six years, and it has a pretty amazing emotional power over me. And I can only imagine Ukraine, what it feels like for Ukrainians who've lived their whole life there. That was Brian Milikovsky. Brian Milikovsky works on international projects focusing on economic recovery in the Donbass and writes about the economy of that region for the Kennan Institute, the National Interest, and Open Democracy Russia. He's been working in Ukraine and Russia since 2009 on ecological and development issues. He's currently raising money to help evacuate civilians from the Donbass. To donate, go to the GoFundMe link on the post for this interview or search evacuating civilians from eastern Ukraine on GoFundMe.com. 
All right. Well, thank you very much, Margaret. Um, I, I want to actually start uh, because I want to say a few words about Brian. Um, like I said in the introduction, this is the fourth time I've interviewed Brian. The first one was in 2015. So really after the conflict in the Donbass really began heating up. But what I really like about him is he has a certain, I mean, I don't know if you guys picked this up from the interview, but he has a certain sensitivity that I really appreciate. Um, you can really, I really feel how deeply personally he's connected with the things he's talking about and with the region he's been living in. Um, so I really want to make a strong pitch for listeners. If you want to help Brian funnel funds to help evacuate civilians from Eastern Ukraine, to go to the gofundme.com and search for evacuating civilians from Eastern Ukraine, you'll find it there. Um, I'll also put a link, of course, on the website, uh, for the, on the post for this interview. Brian's been working with NGOs in the region since 2015, and he knows some really great people. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of places to donate money to help, you know, the effort, help Ukrainians in a variety of capacities. And I, I do, I put my absolute trust and faith in, in what Brian is working at, working with and work trying to do. So I encourage people to, to do that. And I just wanted to make a statement. I'm really glad, Sean, that you got to interview Brian for the fourth time, um, especially at a moment like this. And I feel like lots of times... We, inter we we mostly interview academics and they talk about um, important research questions, but a lot of times I feel like they're not very, um, they're not tied to current events, they're not tied to um, issues of the day. And it was, it was refreshing to listen to Brian because he's talking about something that's going on right now and something that I personally feel very um, not involved in, but impacted by. He's making a tremendous effort. Unlike a lot of people I feel in Russia um, or even in the States, you know, to make this situation better, to help the the victims. And so yeah, I just feel it's great that the SRB podcast could be a platform where um, his campaign can be known and perhaps more money can be raised to help the evacuees. One of the things that I took away from this interview was Whenever, like, Brian's kind of continued perspective that the Russian support on the ground is so exaggerated or kind of highlighting how exaggerated it really is, because that's kind of that's the predominating line of defense on the Russian side is that, like, the people there want it in eastern Ukraine. So as we learned from the Yurchak interview, the Russian support from the war is not clear because the metrics that they're using to establish the support are not reliable. Um, so, like, by them kind of with the Russian side continuing to to assert that, that the Ukrainians want this, 
there's not only the initial Ukrainian identity eraser, but that kind of a next level of not only is who you are, like the Ukrainians are seen, A, as like these little brothers of Russia or something. And then also their desires are really, they don't know what they want. And so we can say what they want. And that's going to count basically just as much. That that goes to something that I was really uh, struck by that Brian said, uh, where people were telling him, people on the ground were telling him, basically, these the Russian government or Putin or whatever, they think they own us. Which was a really, I mean, you know, because this is, again, going back to why I really like talking to him is to get that perspective of like, you know, we tend to look at these conflicts either as like a big, from the big picture, you know, Russia, Ukraine, America, NATO, blah, 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 blah. Or we, we look at it in individual stories, right? You can open up the New York Times and hear the story about a particular family or particular individuals and their experience, which can be incredibly profound and, and enlightening. But what I, what I really like about what Brian does is he has the knowledge of those individual stories, and he's able to, he takes them and kind of gives us a sense of some of the, the the issues that are a bit larger. So he's kind of hovering above the individuals and below the geopolitics and giving us that kind of general perspective on the ground. And that that comment of his about, you know, somebody telling him that the Russians think they own us was a really interesting thing way to see how do people on the ground understand what's going on definitely and um i wanted to build on on this on this comment sean um and talk about the main takeaway point for me which was brian's discussion of russian imperialist advances and the ideas that support it um right i think at the very beginning, he starts talking about the fact that Russia was kind of Russian. Russian government was led to believe that a lot of people in Ukraine would support the invasion and anything that Russia does because they're Russian speaking, right? And yeah, and, and I mean the people in the Donbas, rightfully so, were outraged. Like, why are these people coming in and destroying everything and think that all this belongs to them for some reason? And that made me kind of aware of this, like, pervasive uh, idea of a unity between language, culture, and ethnicity that goes back all the way to German romanticism. And, I mean, I know that in the U.S., probably, it's not very... um, It's different. Yeah, because we have race. Yes, because there's race, because it's been a colony. And so it's kind of clear that, like, yes, both Great Britain and and America, we speak English. I mean, but we're not the same. And I mean, America has its own myths, like Manifest Destiny, etc. But in, like, a lot of European countries, and Russia included, this unity um, has been very pervasive at the base of, um, you know, nation building. And, you know, his comment made me aware that's like, that's what the issue is here as well, right? That just because people 
in Russia and Ukraine share language means that they also share a culture and they also share ethnicity. That's why a lot of Russians don't really like recognize Eastern Ukrainians as a separate community because, well, they all speak Russian, like they're just like us. It's a really interesting to remind us of this primordialism, this, this you know, inherent connection that's being made between language, culture, and people, and nation, and ethnicity. Um, it, it doesn't take into account how people's identities in that region have been transformed in the last eight years. That, you know, one of the other things that he said that I, was re I found really interesting is the, the fact that you're not seeing levels of support that you saw in 2014 because people's identities have changed through their experience. And again, it points to, and I've said this in other places, the total unbelievable miscalculation that the Russian government has made. And I think that you just provided one of the answers as to why they made that miscalculation. I feel like where Russia, the only opportunity I see for like a Russian revival is, is, is the dissolution of Putin, <laughs> Putinism really, because lucky for the Russian people, the, the state is so vertically integrated that Putin kind of has taken all of the blame for this. And I wonder, I mean, maybe not, maybe I'm sure that there's going to be a, a lot of a lot of bad feelings for a long time, but at least on a global scale, I think people are starting to understand that how much Putin is kind of veering away from from the desires of the people, especially with this huge um, drain, P people just like evacuating Russia, like uh, not just Ukraine too, but also Russia, people are fleeing. So, um, that's that's the only way that I can see like I mean where where can their relationship stand after this like whatever semblance of trust and solidarity there was how does it even come back so you have the unity of language culture you know you have this kind of uh historical connection where does it go well, thank you very much for your your comments and your observations uh, I find them always enlightening um I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined, as always, by Rusana Novakova and Margaret Budik. And as you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. So since you're a listener, at least I'm assuming if you're listening, you're a listener, uh, please, <laughs> please help us out and uh, help us spread the word. Do it the old school way and just tell people. Um, you can also drop us a line on uh, Facebook and Twitter and at srbpodcast.org. Let us know what you think of what we're doing. We've gotten some interesting response, uh, some criticism, some good things, some bad things, which is which is great. Help us improve. Um, and as always, you know, we'd love to have your financial support. You know, this is a, a nonprofit educational endeavor. We're trying to spread the knowledge and share the knowledge about uh, the wider region. And uh, this, of course, means that we rely on individuals and other uh, institutions to keep this podcast completely free from listeners without any paid advertisements. So please help us keep it that way and go and, and can really consider 
uh, joining the table of ranks and, and becoming a monthly patron to the SRB podcast so we can do this and do some other things we have planned. So uh, until next time, bye. It's not just the words, some of y'all heads up in the cloud I'ma bring y'all back to earth, it's black back to burn Bullshit y'all talking about, out your mouth I'm not concerned Cause y'all got to learn, it's y'all turn like Detroit Red When his head had an ultra burn, the long walk I burned Your bare heels, so throw on your boots The game camouflage like army suits But I can see it more clear cause I came with the coop in here Ring the alarm and form the troops Send them out into the world, go to war on the flu Out of eye with the enemy you sworn to shoot Now I'm coming at your neck, sick of hearing Something wrong with me, motherfucker. Something wrong with you. When the cheap just way too smart to question. The enemy, the brothers of a dark complexion. The governments of the world is shark infested. They have the own weaponry like Shark and Heston, man. Look, it gets low here. Toys till I taste the pavement, trying to stay out the pier where we face enslavement. Had a foolproof hustle till they trace the payments. I was gripping.